When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he truly was an amazing teacher, wasn't he? At multiple points in his ministry, thousands of people would come from all over the place to hear the words of the Lord. Just consider some of the things that are said about our Lord's teachings. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, it tells us that they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And Luke 4 and verse 22, And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And one of my personal favorites in John 7, verses 45 to 46, of where the officers of the temple guard are sent to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. And the leaders say, well, where is he? And they say, never a man spake like this man. Even those who were sent to arrest the Lord were arrested by his manner of teaching. Even today, 2,000 years later, many people are still familiar with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such was the impact of his teaching and of his instruction. And what we tend to look at tonight is his teaching in one of the parables, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But fundamentally, why is it that Jesus spoke in parables in the first place? In fact, this was one of the questions that his disciples had for him. They came to him in Matthew 13 and verse 10 and said to him, basically, Jesus, why don't you just tell people what you want them to know? Why do you give them these abstract stories that are difficult to understand? Well, Jesus goes on to answer that question in Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 to 13, which I'll read for us. It says, He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. The response of Jesus here is somewhat curious at first glance. It would lead us to believe that instead of a teaching mechanism, that these parables are actually an obscuration mechanism, something intentionally designed to cause confusion and difficulty in understanding. And we wonder, well, why would he do this? Did he not want the people to understand? Wasn't this the purpose of the ministry, to share the good news of the kingdom of God? Well, it is true that the parables were a teaching mechanism. We read in Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, right before Jesus goes on to deliver a number of parables, where it says that he began again to teach by the seaside. So he was teaching through the use of parables. But they were also designed to differentiate. In addition to being a teaching mechanism, they were also a separating mechanism to discern those who were just following Jesus for the fish and the bread, the healings, the benefits that they could personally gain for themselves versus those who were the true disciples. Careful reading helps to show where Jesus was placing the emphasis in Matthew chapter 13 when he's speaking to his disciples. Note in Matthew 13 and verse 13, he says, because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And he puts a finer point on it in verse 15 when he says, This people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed. The people had made the decision, not Jesus. They had made the decision to not see, to not hear, to not understand. It was not something that Jesus had decided for them. As a result, what the parables did is they simply exposed the people that had already made this inward decision 
and it forced them to self-declare outwardly. The purpose of the parables then was not to blind them, but it was to confirm the state that was already there. That's a key when we approach the parables, to understand that the purpose of the parables was not to blind the people, but it was to confirm the state that was already there. There were those who were interested in understanding. There were those who asked the questions. And it harkens back to the words that were spoken in Proverbs chapter 25, that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search out a matter. And for those who were interested in understanding, our Lord explained it to them. And he recorded these words concerning those individuals. And to you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. It's our goal today to understand the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and not just to understand it, but to implement the lessons from it. Similar to the people in our Lord's day, our response to the parables determines where we're at in our spiritual walk. Christ used them as a differentiator. They were meant to drive a decision, and the decision that our Lord is challenging us with this evening is what will it take to make us believe? What will it take for us to truly follow our Lord. Our belief is demonstrated by the reward that we seek. It reveals a great deal about us. The reward that we're seeking helps to show where our focus is truly at. But when we take a look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, at first glance, this parable can seem obscure and perhaps even a good one to avoid. The imagery that's presented to us here of concerning life after death can be somewhat troubling, and it can seem to be out of sync with the rest of Scripture. How do we explain the Lord's teaching here? A place of torment and a place of comfort coexisting at the same time? Is this really the reward for the righteous, to look out and to see people perpetually being tormented in flame, crying out in agony? What's actually going on here in this parable, and why is it included by our Lord? What are we supposed to be pulling from this for ourselves? You might be wondering, of all the parables that we could choose to cover, why this parable? Well, this parable comes, and its delivery comes, at a very pivotal point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you take a look at this chart, and you can see the chronology of the Gospels laid out here between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see toward the bottom where the big yellow arrow is, where it's believed that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is given. It's given just approximately a couple months before the crucifixion. It comes right at the end of the Lord's ministry, and it forms really a final appeal to anyone who is willing to believe. What I'd like to do tonight is really consider three primary things in relation to this parable. We'll first consider why it is that the Lord includes this parable at this point in the ministry. We'll consider secondly what it's designed to teach and finally, how it impacts the final weeks of our Lord's ministry. At the outset, I'd suggest that there's a few key reasons as to why our Lord includes the parable at this particular point in the ministry. The end indeed was nearing, and this forms a final appeal from our Lord to reach out to anyone who is actually still trying to decide where they were at in regards to their position concerning the kingdom. These three reasons for why Jesus delivers the parable at this point in the ministry are shown here. That first is to rebuke the religious leaders, because it really completes a series of parables that are given in Luke chapters 15 
to 16. And we'll take a look at these parables in the broader context to see what it is that Jesus is actually trying to highlight with these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. Secondly, we'll see that it sets the stage for the resurrection of Lazarus, which when you take a look at it chronologically, is probably within one week's time of when this parable was given, perhaps even just a couple of days. Those who were looking for proof of the resurrection and for evidence of faith that God truly would raise his own son would find the resurrection of Lazarus to be a very big boost to their own faith. In fact, what we find is that this theme of belief is one that features prominently in this whole story. The disciples would be able to see clearly what it was that God could accomplish through his son. They would also be able to see who it was that was leading the nation at that particular time, to slice through the, the veneer that they were painting for themselves and to see what truly lay at the heart of those religious leaders. And finally, it was to draw the Lord's ministry to a close. This event, I hadn't realized it before, but this event in the resurrection of Lazarus that comes afterward is really a triggering event that catalyzes the acceleration of the closure of our Lord's ministry. This is where the religious leaders concretely decided that now was the time to put Jesus to death. So what we'll do is we'll explore each of these as we go through the narrative together. Let's first take a look at this first aspect of the re rebuking of the religious leaders. This parable of the rich man and Lazarus is part of a series of parables that the Lord Jesus Christ is developing in these couple of chapters here in Luke chapter 15 and 16. You can see this here on the screen of where the context is the Pharisees' attitude toward Christ's preaching at the beginning of Luke 15. And so what Jesus does is he delivers a series of parables. And the purpose is to illustrate the poor attitude of the religious leadership and the consequences of this poor attitude. The first three parables are linked together in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and of the lost sons. The theme here is something of value has been lost. Diligent effort is applied to search for it, and the resulting joy that comes when somebody finds that which was lost, something of great value. So you have the sheep, somebody that's lost outside the house or outside the ecclesia. The lost coin, somebody that's lost within the house, inside the ecclesia. And finally, the lost sons, the combination of both, and the father's effort to return both the lost sons, those who are lost outside and inside the house. The rebuke that was specifically given here was the leader's lack of care for God's people. They didn't value them. They didn't search for them. And they were angry like the elder brother instead of joyful in their service. And so our Lord rebukes them quite summarily here in Luke chapter 15. The next parable that comes along is the parable of the unfaithful steward. And the theme here is that dishonesty shown in our responsibilities now will require account and result in rejection by our Lord in the day of judgment. And so what happens in this particular storyline is a dishonest steward is called to account. He's going to be fired by his master because he's dishonest. And he's told to give a final accounting of what the books look like before he's kicked out of the job. Well, in the process of making that final account, he ends up writing down the requirements or what's owed by his master's servants. And in so doing, he seeks to endear himself to those servants. This further dishonesty costs his master, but 
It's an effort of this steward to make himself be in good standing with the rest of the servants. And the rebuke that's given here is the thievery of the Pharisees with God's laws. The things in God's house and the lowering of God's standards to the people for personal benefit, for personal gain. And finally, the parable that we have tonight of the rich man and Lazarus. The theme of a a lack of compassion in this life resulting in a lack of reward in the life to come. For those who were hardened to the gospel message, even the resurrection would be powerless to effect change. And the rebuke that was given here is that their lifestyle would result in them being rejected. And due to their pride, sadly, they were beyond reconciliation. This series of parables here in Luke chapters 15 and 16 was designed to rebuke the leaders for their contempt of the poor and the needy. The Jewish leaders didn't really care about God's people. They lacked joy. They were unfaithful with their responsibilities. They lowered God's standards for the people, and they possessed an unrepentant mindset, so much so that even the resurrection would be powerless to effect real change. And as a result, they were going to be thrust out of the kingdom. This is how these parables were lumped together. This is the messaging. This is the overall storyline that our Lord is developing in these two chapters. Unless we wonder whether or not the religious leaders really understood that these parables were directed toward them, we're told in Luke 16 and verse 14 that the Pharisees who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. They got the point. They knew that these parables were being delivered toward them. And so one of the big challenges to us as we listen at the outset of this class is are we willing to accept seeing issues in ourselves, and making changes when our Lord's Word identifies within us those changes that must be made? Do we have the courage to step up and to work on our behavior, or do we look elsewhere and deride others when those deficiencies are shown in ourselves? It's always easier to cast our eyes onto somebody else's issues when the mirror of self-examination is held up before our face. But the challenge to each of us is that we need to humble ourselves and to make the necessary changes while there still is time. So what is it then that this parable is designed to teach? Let's go ahead and get into the story then that our Lord lays out for us. There's really an introduction of two characters at the beginning of this story. The first of the two characters is this certain rich man that comes up in verse 19. There's a couple of key aspects about this certain rich man that our Lord highlights right out of the gate. The first pertains to his clothing and the second to his lifestyle. When it came to his clothing, he was wearing purple and fine linen. And as the listeners of this parable would have cast in their mind, well, who might this be? One group of individuals would come to mind. There was a certain class, a certain group that wore this type of attire. We know from Exodus 28, verses 2 through 5, that it was the priestly class that wore this type of clothing of purple and fine linen. And at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Sadducees were the ones who were the priestly class. And so immediately it would cast in the mind of the listeners that this was something that would be directed toward the Sadducees, toward the priestly class at that time. Well, what was it about their lifestyle that our Lord was highlighting this certain rich man in the story? Well, he fared sumptuously every day. This word fared is the same word that's translated as merry 
in the parable of the lost sons over in Luke 15, verses 23, 24, 29, and 32. And when it says that he fared sumptuously, sumptuously means magnificently. So he was living it up. How often? Well, every day he was living it up. In fact, when you think about living like this every day, it would have included implicitly the Sabbath. It's interesting to contrast this type of lifestyle with what it was that the people were supposed to be doing on days like the Sabbath. In Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 7, Isaiah clearly instructs the people through the Spirit that they were supposed to be giving their bread to the poor, looking out for those who were hungry. Keep that context in mind as we continue to read through the parable. What we find here as you're trying to make connections is that this certain rich man and the elder brother of Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the lost sons are connected. They're both referring to these religious leaders in Christ's day. In Luke 15 and verse 28, the elder brother was angry. In verse 29, he was unwilling to make merry. That same word is fared with the younger brother. But when it came to himself, this same class of people spared no expense on themselves in making merry every day and living a magnificent life. That's the first character in the story that our Lord introduces us to. But in contrast to this first character is a second character, a certain beggar. And this character has a name. His name is Lazarus. Well, this word for beggar is the same word that's translated as poor in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as you take a look at what this poor beggar receives, you can see here how Jesus is actually developing that aspect of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes when it pertains to the poor in spirit. His name is Lazarus, which is the Greek form of Eliezer, and it means whom God helps. But sadly, the contrast that we see in this parable is that this man receives no help from anyone in this life. In fact, his help is solely dependent on his heavenly father and the help that he can provide. And where this man is located is at the gate of the rich man. It tells us that he was laid at his gate. Unless we think that this is some type of care or compassion of somebody gently laying this man down at the gate, that word for late is actually cast or thrown down. It's not gentle at all. In fact, it's used in John 8 and verse 59 when it talks about the Jews taking up stones to cast at Jesus. And so we have this poor man thrown in a heap at the gate of the rich man. And you can see the state of affairs that he's full of sores, which are ulcers with a discharge. And you wonder, did this man have leprosy? It's interesting to note that this is the only person in any of the parables of Jesus Christ that received a name. And his name was Lazarus. Take note of this because this will become significant as we talk about the rest of the story in the due course of time. And so we have this rich man living a grand day every day of his life. And at the gate of his house, we have this poor man, Lazarus, begging every day. So what does this rich man do about it? Well, as we read on, we can see that the rich man does absolutely nothing about it. Opportunity was at his gate, and he callously goes on living as though this man seemingly doesn't even exist. What opportunities has God laid at our gate, the gate of our house, just outside perhaps of our specific domain, 
of where there's opportunities for us to help somebody else in need. What are we doing about them? Are we carrying on with our life as though nothing is going on? Are we even aware that those needs exist? In verse 21, what we find is that this poor beggar Lazarus wasn't searching for a complete meal. He wasn't searching to live the good life. All he wanted were the crumbs that would fall from the table of the rich man. This was a similar desire to the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, verses 27 to 28, where she was looking for any kind of remaining grace that could be extended to her from the Lord. It wasn't the expectation of Lazarus to have something grandiose. He just wanted whatever remained. And perhaps that's all that's needed sometimes when those opportunities are presented at our gate, a word spoken in season, being a good steward to those who are in need, seeing the opportunities that God provides at our gate and doing something about them. The problem, though, in this parable is that there was a separation. There was a separation between Lazarus and this rich man. Lazarus was at the gate, unable to enter, and the rich man at his table, unwilling to lift a finger to help this poor man. The only consolation that Lazarus received was the dogs who licked his sores. And perhaps it was these dogs who were drawn by the scraps that fell from the master's table, that they would eat the scraps before Lazarus could get to them. And the only consolation that Lazarus would receive was these dogs licking the sores that were on his body. These would not be the cuddly animals that some of us have today as pets, but these were the animals that were spoken of by Peter in 2 Peter 2 and verse 22. Dogs who were coupled with pigs, dogs who ate their own vomit is how Peter refers to them. These were the only creatures that gave Lazarus any comfort in this life. Remember the meaning of Lazarus, Eliezer, whom God helps, but he's receiving very little comfort from anyone as our Lord reveals the details of this parable. Well, in verse 22, time passes by. And as we would expect based on life circumstances, Lazarus dies first. After his death, we're told that he's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. In the course of time, the rich man also dies, and we're given the added detail that he was buried. This is absent with Lazarus. Perhaps you noticed that, that there was no burial mentioned when it came to Lazarus. Burial incurred an expense. The rich man could cover such an expense, but Lazarus, he could not. So even in death, there was a distinction between these two men. Yet the situation would soon reverse in the parable, and the rich man would find himself on the side of being the one who was without. This is where the parable can seem to get a bit strange in the picture that our Lord is presenting to us. But what we'll continue to do is to walk through the narrative to try to understand the picture that our Lord is presenting first, and then we'll circle back to understand the why as to why it is that Jesus used this imagery. As we continue on in verse 23, we've already been told that Lazarus was carried down by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which suffice it to say at this point is a place of comfort. Meanwhile, in verse 23, the rich man finds himself in hell or Hades. Consider the state of the rich man as our Lord reveals the next stage of the parable. We find that he was in torments. This Greek word for in, torment, in torments is 
basanos, which is a touchstone. And a touchstone is a rock that's used to test the purity of precious metals by observing the color that the precious metal leaves on the surface of that basanos, that touchstone. So what you would do is you would take this precious metal that was somewhat soft and you would scrape it along the surface. And based on the color that was left behind the witness mark, you would be able to see how pure that metal was. Well, metaphorically, Thayer's tells us in his lexicon that this was also used in those days to refer to a torture device, the rack. And what they would do is they would subject a prisoner to the rack as a basanos, as a touchstone, to test the purity of the message that was being communicated to them. In this parable, we're told that not only was torture being applied to this individual, to this rich man, but that in verse 24, he finds himself in flames. Pretty graphic imagery that's being presented here by the Lord. The rich man being tortured on a device of some type, subjected to flame and immense pain. But he's not there by himself. He lifts up his eyes, and in the distance, he sees a figure. And as he forces his eyes to focus through the searing pain, he recognizes that figure. That figure is Abraham, but Abraham is not alone. And in, in Abraham's bosom is somebody else, another familiar figure. And he would have realized, I, yes, that, that's that beggar who sat by my gate each day. But what, what was his name? Lazarus. Yes, that's right. Lazarus was his name. And in agony, the rich man cries out. That word cry means to, to shriek like the cock's crow. So you get this shriek of the rich man crying out in pain, this guttural cry that would be emitted from him. And he says, Father Abraham. And he makes this strange request from Abraham that he would have Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in water and place it on his tongue. But what are some of the details here that can reveal to us perhaps some of the significance of this request? What's actually going on here? Well, by using the phrase Father Abraham, Jesus is addressing a fallacy in the belief of many at that time that somehow natural descent from Abraham would secure their place in the kingdom. John the Baptist addresses this in Luke 3 and verse 8. Think not to say within yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. And he went on to tell them that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Jesus himself addresses this in John chapter 8 and says, If you were Abraham's sons, you would do the works of Abraham. What's this rich man appealing to Father Abraham for? Well, for mercy, for something that he had never showed in his life. And because this rich man had never showed mercy, sadly, he would not receive mercy, as we're told in James chapter 2 and verse 13. And what is it that he desires? The tip of the finger in water to cool his tongue. If you were in flames, being tortured, would you request somebody to take a wet finger and to put it on your tongue? Would this really do anything for you? It seems like a very odd request, but think about the significance as the Jews would think about their law and what this would represent. Remember, Lazarus was the Greek form of Eliezer. And when you look in the law with the tip of the finger, in Numbers 19 and verse 4, what we find is that Eliezer the priest would take the tip of his finger with the blood of the red heifer and the process that was used to create the ashes that would be mixed with water. This mixture of ashes and water would be used to cleanse those who were defiled by death. We can read that in Numbers 19 and verse 13. You also consider the irony 
that the Jewish leaders were just upraided a few chapters before in Luke 11 and verse 46 for laying grievous burdens on men that they couldn't bear and not being willing to lift one of their fingers to alleviate the burden. And now what is it that this man's asking for, for Lazarus to take one of his fingers to alleviate his burden? It's not going to happen. And additionally, the part of the body that this rich man is seeking relief for is his tongue. The very part of his body that he used when he fared sumptuously every day, consuming those meals to the exclusion of Lazarus. And just as the tongue of these Jewish leaders had kindled fires in their mortal lives, just like we read in James 3 verses 5 and 6, through the things that they said, they were now in parabolic form, subjected to the torment of flame and the life to come, as it is set on fire of hell. As James picks up this quotation, perhaps, from the parable that we're reading. But despite this appeal that's made here in verse 24, look at the response of Abraham. It's not one of scoffing at this rich man, but you can see a genuine appeal back to this man. He says, son. It's a term of endearment, technon. It's the same word that the father uses back in Luke 15 and verse 31 to the elder son in the parable who was showing no compassion. It's a term of endearment, a term of appeal. And what Jesus is illustrating here is that the deficiency is never on the part of the father. The father's will is that all men would be saved, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. But true sonship is predicated upon living like Abraham as we read in Romans 2, verses 28 to 29. What else do we find in the response of Abraham to this rich man? Look at the pronouns that he uses, thou and thy, interspersed when he speaks to the rich man. You, in your lifetime, received your good things, but now, now you are tormented. It was impossible for him to serve two masters. He had chosen the master that he would serve in this life. And as a result, he had his reward. This was your reward to the rich man. And now your reward is over. There's nothing left for you. And even in the rich man's appeal, it was all about him personally. What could Lazarus do for him? How could Lazarus make his life easier? And as Abraham here in the parable paints the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus, he says concerning Lazarus, that he had evil things. There's no pronoun associated with the things that Lazarus received. They weren't his evil things. These were not things that Lazarus sought after, nor things that he deserved. They were part of his plight in life. And just because hardships strike in the life of another doesn't mean that they're an assessment, doesn't mean that they're God's assessment on the life of that individual. It could very well be the opposite of what others may naturally conclude, as is the case here, that the one suffering the most in this life and faithfully enduring is actually the one that is most godly. Well, as we continue on in verse 26, the Abraham of the parable continues on to state that even if there was a willingness, an ability to help, a desire, that the chasm that exists between them made it an impossibility. In verse 27, though, the rich man doesn't give up. Seeing that he's personally out of options, he now changes the focus of his appeal from himself to now thinking about others, to now thinking about members of his family that were still alive. He appeals that Lazarus would be sent to his father's house 
because in verse 28 he has five brethren and he wants the opportunity to save them from the same unhappy conclusion that he now finds himself in. But why five? It seems like a, a curious inclusion by our Lord to have this level of specificity in the parable of five brethren. Well, we'll come back to that as well in the course of time to see why it is that the Lord includes here five brethren. Well, in verses 29 to 31, the parable wraps up by Abraham stating that he's not willing to send Lazarus back from the dead. Instead, he tells Lazarus, or he tells the rich man, rather, that those who were alive should be listening to the words of Moses and the prophets. But the rich man contests again. Look, if somebody were to rise from the dead, it would be irrefutable. They'd have to believe. But Abraham responds that if they weren't willing to listen to Moses and the prophets, then they wouldn't be persuaded even if one rose from the dead. Persuaded means to convince one to believe. So even seeing a resurrection from the dead wouldn't be enough to convince them to believe. We're told in no uncertain terms in Luke 20 and verse 27 that the Sadducees denied the resurrection. There was no resurrection as far as the Sadducees were concerned. And given that they're the primary target of this parable, it would be truly irrefutable proof of the message of Jesus if one were to be risen from the dead. They denied the resurrection outright, with no life beyond this life. It was all about what they could extract from the present. And doesn't that make logical sense? If there's nothing beyond the present, why wouldn't you make every effort to extract out of this life every pleasure that you could? Why would you make any sacrifices? Why would you help others? If there was no future day of reckoning for our current behaviors, why sacrifice? Why deny self? Why take up our cross? It wouldn't make any sense for us to do it if there was no resurrection. That's the whole point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. But Jesus is going to go on now to shake the foundation of this false belief and to demonstrate that there truly would be a resurrection. But let's pause for a moment and think about why it is that Jesus is using the imagery that he is here before stepping into the next portion of understanding how Jesus continues to expand and develop upon the storyline. When you think about it first and foremost, there's a real challenge here with taking this parable literally. Think about some of the issues here with the literal interpretation of the story that we've just read. Is this really the reward of the righteous? Is it paradise when you can look out your window and see another person writhing in agony in flames? Is that really what God has in store for the righteous, to take those who are compassionate and force them to look at those who are in agony for all eternity? Well, that's not what Revelation 21 and verse 4 describes, of where in the end, there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. Those things will pass away. And so we conclude, well, that doesn't seem to fit with the reward that God provides to those who are faithful. Well, what about Abraham? Where was he presently at, at this particular juncture in time of when the Lord delivers this parable? These are some good first principle references to write in when thinking about the bosom of Abraham. Where was Abraham at their time? Well, Abraham was dead. Jesus tells us that in John 8, verse 52 to 53, and these references here in Hebrews chapter 11. But what was Abraham doing now that he was dead? Well, he was sleeping. 
just like all others who sleep, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 24. But what exactly does that mean, that he was dead, that he was sleeping? Well, we know that the dead know nothing. Their envy is gone, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6, and that the grave cannot praise. There is no hope in the grave or in hell, as we know the word actually means. The dead can't praise, but are silent, as we read in Psalm 115, verse 15. But here in this parable, we find that there's people speaking, that there's a conversation taking place. There's no remembrance in Psalm 6, verses 3 to 5, which is different than the appeal that Abraham makes to the rich man to remember. Their thoughts perish in death, as we read in Psalm 146, verse 3. But the rich man here is clearly thinking, reasoning through things and coming up with thoughts and conclusions about what good next steps might be. And on top of that, cooling your tongue with a drop of water as to whether or not this truly would provide relief when burning in a fire. These are all points of evidence that would lead us to conclude that this must be figurative based on the context and scriptural consistency. Where is it that Jesus is actually drawing these concepts from? Are these things that he's constructing for the purpose of telling a story, or is he getting these details from elsewhere? What I'd suggest to you is that Jesus was using the false teaching of the Pharisees regarding the reward to show them that they wouldn't obtain the reward that they were seeking after due to their attitude toward others. But what's the proof for that? Is it clear, just supposition, or is there some proof that would support that? Well, the proof is really in the works of Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Pharisee who defected to the Romans in AD 70 when he could see that the hope of Jewish deliverance was futile. And he actually went on to record many portions of Jewish history. And what we have here is actually an excerpt from Josephus's discourse to the Greeks concerning Hades, essentially summarizing what it is that they believed concerning Hades and what would happen after death. I've highlighted a few of the excerpts for the sake of this class, where he says here, Now as to Hades, wherein the souls of the righteous and unrighteous are detained, in this region there's a certain place set apart as a lake of unquenchable fire. Think about some of the details that we were just reading in the parable that's given in Luke 16. Well, what happens in this place of unquenchable fire, in this place called Hades? Well, people are conducted down by the angels. The just are guided to the right hand and to a region of light. There is no place of toil, no burning heat, no piercing cool, nor are there any briars there. This place we call the bosom of Abraham. Well, as you continue on, you can see that's not the case for everyone. There's a different outcome for those who are the unjust. Instead, they are dragged by force to the left hand. For a chaos deep and large is fixed between them, insomuch that a just man that hath compassion upon them cannot be admitted, nor can one that is unjust, if he were bold enough to attempt it, pass over. So when you take a look at the description that's provided here by Josephus, summarizing their teachings concerning the afterlife, it's almost verbatim extracts from the Pharisaical teachings that Jesus is using. And if you were to put them in tabular form, you can see point by point Many of the connections between what Josephus had taught or summarized of Pharisaical teachings to what it was that Jesus was including in this particular parable. So Jesus was obviously referencing their belief in the afterlife, but the question that comes to bear is, 
well, why wouldn't Jesus simply teach them the right thing? What I'd suggest to you is that Jesus' point in this parable was not to teach them about the reward, to teach them about what the reward looked like or what the experience would be like. Not at all. Jesus' whole point in the parable was to tell them that they wouldn't get the reward, regardless of what it looked like. You define it however you want to. You're not going to get it. It was what Jesus is telling them. Therefore, the precise definition of the reward was inconsequential. It was the fact that they wouldn't receive the reward that was important to the message of our Lord here. The Jews thought that they would receive the reward, and Lazarus would not. However, the role is reversed to demonstrate to them their depravity. And so if it was symbolic in nature, and Jesus was pulling the teachings from the false doctrines of the Pharisees to help them understand that they wouldn't get the reward, what exactly is it that we're supposed to pull away? What does this parable actually communicate? Well, think about the initial description of the certain rich man that we considered, and now start to connect some of the details concerning those who were alive at the time, and connecting as well this aspect of having five brethren. Lazarus, on the one hand, was typical of most Jews. This was an indictment of the Jewish leaders, and it references back to Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4, of where the, the leaders were consuming the flock, not feeding them, instead of caring and providing for them. And this man, this certain rich man, had a father's house with five brethren living in it. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, was son-in-law to Annas. And Annas had five sons. Hence, Caiaphas actually had five brethren. And here he is requesting a sign that one should rise from the dead. But despite seeing this sign, Jesus is saying, you're still not going to believe. So the whole point that Jesus is communicating here is that the leadership of the nation was so far gone, even to the point of the high priest, that they would be unwilling to listen, and no amount of signs would help them. Perhaps a question worth pausing to ask ourselves at this point is, what causes us to overinvest in the present life? What might cause us to overfocus on the pursuit of leisure or seeking fulfillment in this age? or perhaps becoming overly anxious about the things that we see around us. See, this is the problem with the religious elite at that time. They were focused very much on the present and what they could extract from it. And the fulfillment, that was their reward. If we find ourselves overly focused on the present, is it because we're lacking the belief in the future? Do we say that we believe in the future resurrection, but maybe not fully believe it? In an age of uncertainty, has the kingdom just become another uncertain detail on which we can't really base a great deal of confidence? Our actions reveal a great deal about where our hearts are truly at and what our level of belief is truly at, where our focus is and what it is that we're doing in our lives. Think about the, the bassinite that's mentioned in the parable, the touchstone on which the precious metal is scraped across and the witness mark reveals how pure that particular metal is. Our actions, our attitude, where we spend our time, leaves an indelible mark on the bassinet of this life, just as the gold leaves the mark on the stone. What is the witness mark that we are leaving from our lives? What is it that our Lord will assess? What is it that he will behold 
what level of purity will he find and how single-mindedly was first the kingdom? Will it be authentic or will it be counterfeit? Which master are we serving and what will it take us to fully believe, to fully commit to seeking first the kingdom? One of the key aspects that come out of this parable is that if we're waiting for a sign to jolt us into focus, to believe that the return of Christ is near, Jesus is saying, forget about it. Like the Jews, we have already received sign after sign after sign in our lifetime. True belief, true faith doesn't come from signs. We read in Romans 10 and verse 17 that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Isn't that what Jesus says in this parable? He says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If they're not convinced by what they're reading in the word of God, what they hear in the word of God, then even a sign to the magnitude of somebody being resurrected wouldn't do it either. Yes, it would be amazing. It would be undeniable. But if the word of God is not firmly fixed in one's mind, then it won't have a lasting impact. It won't result in true belief, and it won't result in real change. Even the things that we see around us, with the pandemic, with the turmoil in our present lives, the impact won't be lasting if we don't use it as a catalyst to get our heads back into the Word and to refocus in the days in which we live. What will it take to make us believe, brothers and sisters? What are we waiting for? Are we going through the motions? Or are we truly being transformed? Are we conscripts, feeling compelled to serve in our Father's house, but not really joyful about it? Or are we committed? Are we all in based on a belief that's shown in our behavior? Am I a conscript? Or am I committed? Conscription leads to a life of compliance, of where we do the minimum standard required to check the box on the terms of our service. But commitment leads to ownership a relentless giving of self, and a commitment to principles that are greater than oneself. This was the challenge that was presented to the Jewish leaders to whom Jesus was speaking. Regardless of how they defined success, they weren't going to get it because their behaviors demonstrated that they were unwilling to change. At the end of Luke 16, Jesus lays out a pretty significant challenge to the leaders that even if one were to rise from the dead, it still wouldn't be enough to make them believe. And this is now where Jesus is going to put it to the test. He had just delivered a parable about a man named Lazarus being raised from the dead. It was the only parable of where Jesus actually named somebody in the parable. Think about what's going to happen now as we consider how it impacts the final week of our Lord's ministry. Our Lord Jesus Christ at this point was over on the east in Bethabara. We learn that from John chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. And when we piece the chronology together, we can find that Jesus delivered many parables while he was on the east of the Jordan. That's where we can slot in Luke chapter 13, verse 23, to Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. The very next thing that occurs chronologically after Jesus delivers all these parables is that Jesus goes to Bethany to raise Lazarus at the beginning of John chapter 11. Lazarus was a dear friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, who were also dear friends of our Lord. Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was about 20 miles to the west of Bethabara, where Jesus was currently residing. 
While in Perea on the east, in the region of Perea, over in Bethabara, we're told in John chapter 11 and verse 3 that messengers were sent to Jesus to inform him that Lazarus was sick. Was sick. But what we find from just a few verses later is that Jesus actually stays there for two more days. It's very possible that in those two days, Jesus constructs this parable of the rich man and Lazarus and delivers it with the intent of laying the groundwork for the miracle that he would perform, knowing that indeed Lazarus was going to die. This parable in Luke 16 ends with the challenge that those would not be convinced to believe even though one were to be risen from the dead. And now Jesus is going to demonstrate that through the resurrection of Lazarus. But not everybody would fall into the same camp of the religious leadership. Time fails us now to get into the details of every aspect of the story concerning the resurrection of Lazarus. But think about the context here for what's taking place. The rich man says, if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. But Jesus, through the words of Abraham in the parable, says they would not be induced to believe, even if one were to rise from the dead. And now Lazarus is going to be raised, and it's going to prove who's willing to believe and who is not. And when you take a look at John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, just note the explosion of this theme of belief and how much it goes through each of the different people involved in the storyline and shows what impact it had on their belief or what impact it didn't have on their belief. This miracle was all about helping those believe who wanted to believe and clearly separating out those who didn't. As I mentioned, time fails us now to do a full coverage on the resurrection of Lazarus, but many of us know the story well. By the time that Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was buried in a cave. There could be no mistake that Lazarus was dead. Nobody could, be, could debate that he had been dead for days. But despite this reality, Jesus raised him from the dead. And the response was amazing. We're told in verse 45 of John chapter 11 that many of the Jews which came to Mary believed on Jesus as a result of what they had seen. But this wasn't the case for everybody. Not everybody was as enthusiastic about the miracle that they had just seen. We see in John 11 and verse 47 that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council to discuss this problem. The chief priests, those who were clothed in purple and fine linen. But what was the problem? Well, the problem was that Jesus did many miracles. And if they left him alone, then all men would believe on him. So what's the solution? Well, Caiaphas speaks up. The man with five brethren, and he provides the solution that it's expedient that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Completely unaffected by the resurrection of Lazarus. And we read that from that day forward in verse 53, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Just like Jesus said, even though one rose from the dead, even somebody named Lazarus, they could not be persuaded to believe. And not only so, but they sought to put Jesus to death, lest others believe. I hadn't realized it before, but this event is the single catalyzing event that brings about the acceleration of the end of our Lord's ministry. The problem here, though, is that Passover hadn't yet come. And so in John 11 and verse 54, Jesus has to go to a different area, lest the acceleration of the end come too quickly. 
and they put him to death. But when Passover was within a week, Jesus returns to Bethany where Lazarus was raised, John chapter 12 and verse 1. Just consider the impact for a moment that the resurrection of Lazarus would have on the area. Even one month later, people are still buzzing about it. Word had gotten around, and Lazarus had become a must-see attraction. You can actually see this when you take a look at John chapter 12, that as people were going down to see the Passover and to participate in it, they would have told each other, you got to stop in and see Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. John 12 and verse 9 says, Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus was such an attraction, such a witness to the authenticity of Christ, that the chief priests decided that they needed to kill Lazarus as well in John 12 and verse 10. It's unbelievable. They were given a parable with a man named Lazarus. They were told in that parable that they wouldn't believe if a man were raised from the dead. A man named Lazarus is raised from the dead, and not only do they not believe, but they want to kill Lazarus. Such was the power of this miracle, the impact that it had on the people, that it brought about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. This was all because of the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus connects that triumphal entry to the resurrection of Lazarus in John 12, verses 17 and 18, saying that for this reason, the people have met him. But the Pharisees are getting more and more exasperated in verse 19. Perceive ye how we prevail nothing. The world has gone after him. Even the Greeks in verses 20 to 22 get caught up in it. And they wanted to meet this amazing Jesus who had done this miracle of raising somebody from the dead. Such was the power of this miracle. And when you see the significance of how they would have viewed this, of prophecy being fulfilled, you can see why it is that the people were going down this path. In Zechariah chapters 8 and 9, it talks about the king riding into Jerusalem just as Jesus did. What was he going to do? He was going to send forth the prisoners out of the pit. He had just raised a prisoner of death out of the pit. The Gentiles would come to Christ through Jesus. The Jews are coming. The Gentiles are coming. They're coming to Jesus just as prophecy has been fulfilled or stated before. And now what's going to happen next according to prophecy? Well, the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. Hosanna, save now. And so the expectation of the people was that the establishment of the kingdom was going to come now. Can you see how all these things were working together to bring about the end, to force a decision, to get the people to think about where are you at in relation to the Messiah? Where is your life? Do you believe? And how will you demonstrate that belief in your life, in your actions, in your behavior? Jesus was making it abundantly clear who was there for the right reasons and who was beyond appeal. Recall the three reasons as we conclude as to why it was that Jesus gave this parable. It was to rebuke the religious leaders and to expose their sinister motivation. Second, it was to lay the groundwork for the resurrection of Lazarus. And third, it was to draw his ministry to a close. All these three things had been accomplished through the events that happened subsequent to the giving of this parable concerning Lazarus. Additionally, Jesus wanted his disciples to be ready to see the religious leaders for who they were, but to also believe, to have substance and evidence for their faith, that God would also raise him from the dead. It had this effect on many, 
but there was a class who refused to believe. And Jesus speaks about them in John 12, verses 37 to 41, which I will just read for us. John 12, verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. And so the words of Jesus here at the conclusion of these events take us right back to where we began our class of considering why it was that Jesus gave the parables to confirm the state of mind that was already there and to make it abundantly clear to everybody as to where they stood in relation to Messiah. For those looking to believe, they would see, they would hear, they would understand, their faith would be increased. But for those who were not the good ground, those who were hardened to the word of God, who did not have the root of the word of God within them, or who were choked out by the cares of this life, the words of Christ would bear no fruit in them. This is a personal decision that each individual needs to make. And this is the challenge that's presented to each and every one of us as we continue to see signs abound around us, as we continue to see events unfold, as we live in unprecedented times. Are we using those things to catalyze the changes, to get us back into the Word of God, to get serious about His Son's return? How are we using the opportunities that are laid at our gate? Are we mindful of our brothers and sisters? Do we know to speak a word in due season, or are we not even aware of others who need help? How can we be more aware of the opportunities that God is laying at our gate to help each other out, to encourage one another in the days that remain? What am I waiting for to get serious about seeking first the kingdom? What else am I waiting to see? What else am I looking for? God is calling out to us that his son is returning soon. What else will it take to get us to get serious about seeking first the kingdom? How am I using these signs to drive me further into God's word? Because that's what we have to use the signs to. We have to use them to get us to be anchored into the word of God. Because otherwise the effects, the impacts of those signs will fade into the distance, fade into the horizon as time continues on. We have to make sure that we're anchoring ourselves to God's word to increase our faith. And finally, what will it take to make me believe? Jesus is returning. The question is, am I ready? Thank you.